A few years ago, Atlas Obscura's senior editor, Gemma Tarlick, came across a scientific study that blew her mind. Five 1.8 million year old skulls that had been found at this site. They were the largest concentration of human skull fossils from this period ever found in the world. They were the oldest uh, human skull fossils found outside of Africa. And I had never heard of them. I had never heard of this site. And I just, I did kind of get obsessed with it and I had to go there. This place is called Dimenisi. It's an archaeological site in the country of Georgia, which is nestled between Russia, Turkey, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. So when I was there, which was a few years ago, uh, there was no public transportation because it's really kind of in, in the south central part of Georgia in a very rural area. And, uh, you know, so you leave Tbilisi, which is a, a major city, lots of traffic, lots of trucks. And as you're driving south and west of the capital, the roads are getting more and more narrow and there are fewer trucks and more sheep. And you really feel like you're going back in time. And then you kind of dip down into the, the road hugs the side of this rocky ravine and it's not paved in a lot of places. And you are alone. The only living things I saw on that final stretch of road were feral dogs. So it really felt like you were going back in time to this place that was still very wild and untamed. I'm Johanna Mayer, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, I'm talking with Atlas Obscura's senior editor, Gemma Tarlek, about her trip to Dimenisi, a site that Gemma says challenges what we think we know about our deep past. After this... Dimenisi sits in a special place. It's in Georgia, right at the crossroads of Europe and Asia. It was also, in a lot of ways, a crossroads from Africa because the climate conditions were such that a lot of African species were moving up out of Africa into this area, and they were encountering species from Europe and from Asia. And once you make that trip up that long winding road and you get kind of to the top of the hill, what is the site like? The overall site is really fascinating because there's a working monastery, there's a medieval fortress. I think one of the things that really struck me as I was walking up to the actual site is it's pretty small, the area that they've excavated. It's maybe the size of a house and a modest house, but it's an open air site. As you walk up to it, you're like, what are all those white rocks sticking out of the excavation pits? And the closer you get, the then you realize they're bones. Oh, my God. There are just so many bones, tens of thousands of bones that they found from uh, very ancient human ancestors, but also just an incredible realm of, sp of species. Rhinos, elephants, giant cheetahs, giant jaguars, ridiculous 
biodiversity at this site. All of these bones that you're talking about are all just in that small area, the size yes. of the house. Why? Yeah. Why would a giant pit of bones <laughs> happen? Or what happened? Well, was there something sinister? No, no. It's it's the circle of life, my friend. <laughs> uh, it's really a combination of factors. So if, if you zoom into the actual site, and you can imagine this kind of densely forested area that overlooks a river. For a predator, it is a really great space to hang out and you're able to see quite a bit around you because you're up above a lot of the forested uh-huh. parts. When you've got very wet, uh, humid forests. Yeah, yeah, and dry, arid kind of coming together. So there were a lot of resources between the river and the forests, a lot of resources for a lot of different animals particularly predators. Uh, huh. There is just a crazy number of carnivore bones that have been found there. I mean, does that include humans also? <laughs> well, you know, I, I've spoken with several researchers who've worked there over the years, and they all, you know, pretty much say, well, humans probably tried to be predators, but <laughs> at this point in history, um, they were probably most likely prey. Now, some Not the, yet at the yeah. top of the food chain. <laughs> they were, you know, small, they were small-brained, um, and not really capable of a lot of the complex thought patterns and actions mm-hmm. that later uh, folks in the genus Homo could have handled. But that said, you know, one of the really interesting things about those five skulls that kind of started this obsession of mine Mm -hmm. is uh, one of the skulls is from an elderly person. They can tell that by the various changes in the bone. Um, What's really interesting about that particular skull is that there is a lot of reabsorption of the jawbone. And what that means is that this individual lost their teeth years before their death. It would have been impossible to, say, chew tough meat. To survive, yeah. Yeah. The fact that this individual lived well into old age without teeth tells us they had to be cared for. They had to have someone helping them get sustenance. And that to me is really extraordinary because a lot of times when we think of ancient members of our family tree we kind of think of oh they were you know they were animals they weren't humans they weren't capable of society and civilization and and compassion even and and this shows that you know 1.77 million years ago uh there were members of our family tree who were really caring for each other and helping each other survive in that way it's like very moving it is it is (laughs) yeah So you said that they had small brains, like literally smaller brains, right? But um, there's a study from 2021 that even though the Dominici homonyms had small brains, they were still able to do big things, right? Yeah. And that's what's really fascinating, too, because, you know, we kind of assume we're, we're such exceptionalists. We assume that because we have such nice big brains that we're capable of a lot of things that earlier members in our family tree, in our lineage, just couldn't handle. And between caring for an individual without teeth, which requires a complex set of behaviors, uh, and they were making different kinds of tools, they 
appeared to be at least trying to hunt <laughs> animals in an organized way. Granted, you know, maybe giant- not succeeding. <laughs> well, I, I think <laughs> one step at a time. I think they probably succeeded, but then I also think the giant cheetahs probably succeeded. Also succeeded, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Everyone yeah. was succeeding along the food chain. <laughs> Yeah, so they're they're just finding all these really interesting behaviors that for a long time paleoanthropologists thought, oh, only humans are capable of this. One of the things that struck me when I started speaking to researchers who've devoted their careers to working there is um, one of them said, you know, this is the first place where humans experienced winter. Early in our lineage, when we were in Africa, there's not a huge seasonal change in terms of temperature. Mm -hmm. There's the dry season and the wet season, yes. But when you get up into this area where Europe and Asia meet, there are serious winters. There's Mm -hmm. snow. So I just, in addition to the fact that people were caring for this, at least one member of their group who was elderly and no longer able to eat on their own, they had to figure out shelter. They had to figure out uh, something warm to wear. They had to figure out what to eat when there was nothing in bloom and nothing growing. So when I think of Dimenisi, I always think of, you know, that was where the human story encountered its first winter. And that always touches me as well. So... What happened to Dimenisi? In a word, volcanoes. Not a real destructive, catastrophic eruption, but at the time it was a volcanically active area and there was just a big pile of ash that fell on this site. After that ash fell, there were no more fossils of this kind of incredible biodiversity. But we think that just over time, uh, paleoanthropologists and archaeologists, geologists all believe that maybe over a period of a few decades, this ash kind of gently fell and drove the predators away and the prey as well. Those volcanoes, they just really put an end to a lot of things on Earth. (laughs) But you know what's really great about these particular volcanoes is that there was an eruption right before this period of incredible biodiversity. And then there was an eruption that ended this period. So Hmm. from the perspective of a paleontologist trying to date these fossils, it is pretty convenient. Yeah, it's super (laughs) wonderful because they are able to date really specifically. Precisely. yeah, Yeah, yeah. Why is this place so under the radar? Why have I never heard about it before? I think there are a number of factors. You know, Georgia has gone through a lot of very significant uh, political and social upheaval Hmm. going from Soviet Republic to independent country with a a lot Hmm. of growing pains. Uh, I think that's one reason. You know, I I also think that sometimes there's there's kind of a bias in paleoanthropology that, oh, all the important sites are in Eastern Africa. Hmm. And uh, it can be challenging to get on the radar when everyone is so focused elsewhere on the map. And, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it should be a UNESCO site. I think it should be on everyone's radar. I think there should be 
at the very least, a massive visitor center where you can buy postcards. You know, there's like nothing. (laughs) Like a National Park poster. (laughs) Yeah. It's really an extraordinary site and it's significant to our story in so many different ways. As I was walking around it, and I was the only tourist there, so it was just me and the caretaker walking (laughs) around. um, And he didn't speak English. Um, I don't speak Georgian. (laughs) There was some getting lost in translation, but we were doing our best to communicate. So, you know, there was that aspect, just being very aware of being in a a place very different um, than I am in my day to day. But even more so, there was a sense of history continuing. And Mm -hmm. as we were walking around, you know, we walked by the monastery and there was a monk um, who was tending bees because that's what the monastery does. So he was taking care of his bees and, you know, there are frescoes that are hundreds of years old, Mm. still on the walls. And so you really had a sense of the full scale of human time. Even though we've only been around for like a drop in the bucket, geologically time speaking, um, you really had a sense of our whole lineage kind of playing out at this site. That was Atlas Obscura's senior editor, Gemma Tarlick, talking about Dimenisi. You can read her full article about the site on atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our show notes. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. The production team includes Dylan Therese, Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Baudelaire, Gabby Gladney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was sound designed by Manolo Morales and mixed by Luce Fleming. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Johanna Mayer, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I'll see you next time. <laughs>